Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. We have a first this week. Usually, we're interviewing songwriters, musicians, producers, and music executives. This time, it's something different. Our first-ever award-winning legendary rock and roll photographer, Bob Gruen. Bob's works are iconic and immediately recognizable. John Lennon wearing the New York City t-shirt, Led Zeppelin standing triumphantly in front of their private plane in all their 70s rock and roll glory, Tina Turner moving so fast that there are several images of her in the same shot, all photographs taken by Bob Gruen. His camera lens has been a window into the world of rock stars, a portal that transports us to the electrifying stages and behind-the-scenes moments of music legends. From the raucous energy of the New York punk scene to the glitz and glamour of big arenas, Bob's photographs have an uncanny ability to tell stories, immortalize fleeting emotions, and to make us feel like we're standing right there amidst the chaos and euphoria. From the Rolling Stones to the Sex Pistols, from Debbie Harry to Elvis Presley, Bob's portfolio reads like the ultimate wing in the all-time music hall of fame. Whatever gets you through the night, it's all right, it's all right. Get your money while you buy it's all right, it's all right. Don't need a salt Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very excited to welcome our in-person guest today, Bob Gruen. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. So, Bob, we call this program Rock and Roll High School, and it's an opportunity for our listeners to learn about the history of contemporary music from the people who helped create it. Most of the time, we interview artists, we interview songwriters and producers. Occasionally, we'll talk to people behind the scenes like the executives who discovered the talent or, you know, some legendary radio DJs who helped get the music out to the world. But you are our first photographer. Oh, good. <laughs> so what's exciting to me about that is that some would argue that your images are as well known as the music itself. Mm, some so, of them. <laughs> yeah, no, which is incredible. And your story is incredible. I actually just finished watching a great documentary about you from around a decade ago, mm -hmm. directed by Don Letts. Right. And it's awesome. Not only is the story behind the iconic images awesome, but the people who spoke so glowingly about you in the documentary, you know, really, really like you, you know, and, and, and you become part of their lives. You know, everybody from Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon to Debbie Harry and Iggy Pop and Billy Joe Armstrong, and, and it just goes on and on and on. And a couple of people that we've actually guested for this program and programs similar, Legs McNeil's been here and, and Lenny Kay's been here. So great to see that. And I learned a lot. Well, what I like about uh, Don's film is that it's a documentary about me and my life, but much more than that, he shows why images are important to rock and roll. Talking to Billy Joe and to Debbie and explaining how they grew up seeing the images and how the images inspired them. I know for myself, when somebody, uh, I had a doctor and he told me he was in a band 
And I immediately went online to try to see the band. Before I even wanted to hear him, I wanted to see what he looked like. Was he the guy with the purple bell bottoms? You know, image in rock and roll is a tremendous part of it. You got to look like a rock star if you want to be a rock star. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Know? And you could argue that it's as important as the music itself because, you know, it is entertainment. And you were yeah. quoted in this documentary that I mentioned that if you're going to shoot something, you want to be entertained. If this is show business, I want to see a show. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? right. And I think most people do, and they want to have some idea of what they're going to see. So that's why there's a poster out in front of the club or there's a picture in the magazine. So people will get an idea that they're coming to see the spectacular or they're coming to see a very conservative act or somebody that's bright yellow or whatever. You know, you want to have some idea of what it looks like. There was a period in the early 90s of a style of music called shoegaze, where the artists didn't do anything on stage. Right, they just stand there and stare at their their shoes. shoes. (laughs) So I can't imagine that that was a show for you. No, that was very boring. I couldn't believe they came up with the shoegaze title because it sums it up so much of these guys. And and someone would just have their back to the audience and just stare at the shoes. And it was about playing the music perfectly. And if I want to hear music played perfectly, I can play a record at home. If you go to see a show, you want something showing, you know? Right. You want to be entertained. Another thing that I love about you is that you're so enmeshed with New York. And when people think about you, they think about New York. When people think about New York and images, they think about you and some of the iconic images that you've taken, whether it was John Lennon in Central Park or John Lennon with your shirt that said New York City that you gave him, that once you photographed him wearing it, you couldn't wear it anymore because no, everyone would want to know yeah, why, yeah. why you were wearing John's shirt. Yeah, it became popular. It became his look instead of mine, which was <laughs> kind of weird. <laughs> but I love the fact that growing up in, in New York, your mom was an amateur photographer mm. and she gave you your first camera when you were eight years old. Right. My parents were lawyers, both of them, but my mom enjoyed developing and printing her own pictures. And when I was very little, around four or five, she taught me how to develop and print pictures. And I liked it a lot. So when I was eight, they got me my first camera. And I kind of became the family photographer, which was good practice because you have to get six dysfunctional people to look good for thirtieth of a second, and and I, and that's what a band is like, you know? <laughs> trying to get all these crazy people to look right for a moment, and and that's what I learned from my family. Right, it was good prep work yeah. for what would come later. I love the story that I read that when you were thirteen, you saw fire. Mm. in the neighborhood and you got your camera and you took pictures of the fire. You went back home and got more film. And right. took more I've, pictures I've, I've of always fire. been drawn to exciting things. At the time I was taking pictures of football games in school and so on. And I saw a fire and a fireman running up and I got so excited. I shot off the first roll of film I had just from the fireman going from the truck up to the end of the ladder. I was shooting so fast like a motor drive. So yeah, I ran home and got more film and came back and took more pictures and then brought them to the newspaper. And so my first published picture was a picture of that fire, which is something I learned early on that even at 13, it's not enough to just take the picture. You have to deliver it somewhere right. on time. Right. And so that's what I started learning then. That newspaper was in New York? A Great Neck, Long Island. Wow. That's crazy. And then I read that you worked at the World's Fair in the photo booth? I was working for a film supply company and they had little booths for the tourists at the World Trade Center to sell film and flashbulbs. And I actually learned a lot because sitting alone in this little booth, all these people from all over the world would come up and ask me how to fix or how to load their camera. And so I got to see cameras from 
remember the ones that Eastern Europe, Yugoslavia and stuff were like really funky. And But every camera has a shutter and a place to put the film in. And they all basically do the same thing, but very differently. I'd have to find where the catch was on this one or where the hinge was on that one. So it was fun to just see all people from all over the world. So learning the craft without mm. really knowing that you were learning the craft. Right. I didn't take a course until... Uh, I was already working in photography in a, a couple of different labs, and then I started working on my own. And then I thought, I, maybe I should learn something about this. And I, I took one course at FIT, the Fashion Institute, to learn about studio lighting. And, and actually, what I learned there more than anything was to be professional. A lot of amateurs can take a good picture. But in order to be professional, you have to take a good picture of what the client wants a picture of, and you have to do it in time. So it's one thing to just see nice things and take good pictures and your friends think you're a great photographer. But when you have to take a picture of that specific person or thing and get it done by Tuesday afternoon, then it becomes professional. Right. (laughs) Right. So what led you to the Newport Folk Festival in 65? Oh, I was a big fan of Bob Dylan and folk music in general. Tom Paxton, Phil Oaks, certainly Buffy St. Marie. And they were all playing up at Newport. I went in 64 And we didn't have enough money to buy a ticket. I think it was like 4 or $5 for a ticket. We didn't have that kind of money. I remember we got a tent and we lived on the beach, a tent that, you know, camped on the beach. And we went to some workshops in the afternoon that were free. And we were just around the music. And in those days with folk music, just on the beach, you'd have hootenannies. Everybody would come around with a guitar and you'd all sing songs together. And when you're a kid, that was a lot of fun. And the next year I came back and I really wanted to see Bob Dylan. And it just turned out that a friend of my mom's gave me a phony letter they said, I represented this ad agency, which had nothing to do with music. But he wrote this letter saying, give this kid a photo pass. And I went to the box office and they said, no way. And I said, yes, I have to have a pass. And they kept saying no. And I kept saying yes. And finally, the woman, to get rid of me, gave me a photo pass. And was that your first, quote unquote, professional? Well, it was the first professional pass. Right. And I took a bunch of pictures. In fact, one of the very few pictures of Bob Dylan when he played with an electric guitar with a, a band which was quite a big moment in folk music. It was when Bob Dylan kind of declared that rock and roll was now the folk music of America. A lot of people disagreed with him, and it was kind of a chaos for a while. But the two major photographers, David Garr and Jim Marshall, were there, and they supplied the magazines like Folk Sing Out and Folkways were the two major folk music magazines. I didn't know anybody from any magazine. And my pictures actually didn't go anywhere for about six or eight years before in early 70s, I started meeting people and they started using that picture from Newport. But at first I was just there to be there, right. you know, and I was taking pictures and excuse to get in. Right. It's a good example of how you end up crossing paths with these legendary musicians throughout their career. You and Bob Dylan have some legendary tales together. Well, not together, but tales, (laughs) yes. Uh, I've never really had a conversation with Bob Dylan, except one time when, after I'd taken pictures without permission, and I met him on a street, and he said he wanted to beat me up. It was the only time we actually spoke. (laughs) Well, that's very rare, because most of the people that you photograph really, really like you. Almost everybody else. I get along (laughs) with some people who became actually family kind of friends, not Bob Dylan. Uh, He was the one I admired the most. And he's the one I've had the least contact and uh, personal relationship. Well, somehow that's a badge of honor then. You know, well, kind of, kind of. But I don't know what it would have been like to work with him. I never really did. I, I took pictures of him over the years in many different places, but we've never really connected. So you're talking about the early 70s now in New York. And I didn't know that Ike Turner played such a pivotal part in your career. And mm. obviously Ike gets 
a certain type of reputation from mm. what's been told about him. Well, it's, it's really unfortunate because Ike is kind of the poster boy for domestic abuse. The film that made What's Love Got to Do With It really exposed that whole idea. Before that film came out, domestic violence was not a phrase that anybody even knew. That They didn't speak about that. So it's a very important film, and it really opened up the whole issue of domestic violence. However, Ike Turner should not have been the poster boy. I mean, there's a lot of other people, like Rick James went to jail for that kind of behavior. It's not Ike's personality. It's more about what happens to a good person who takes way too much cocaine <laughs> and goes way well, out of well, control. Talk, talk I mean, about, after being awake for days right, and days. Of course. But Ike helped me and lots and lots of other people get their start and get established. I happened to take a really good picture of Ike and Tina. when I, I went to a club and I saw Tina Turner play because a friend of ours just said, you have to go. And at the end of the show, a strobe light was flashing. And you know, I just get images of a person in different odd positions dancing. And I just wondered what would happen if I took a one second exposure and captured several of those images. Because I was right at the end of the roll of film. I had to use it up anyway. And I took four or five shots and four of them are pretty bad. And one of them is one of the best pictures I've ever taken. It just captures five images of Tina Turner that really shows the energy and excitement of Tina in one second of time. I took the pictures with me to show my friends a couple of days later. And as we were leaving, one of the theater in a round, so the dressing rooms were outside. And one of my friends saw Ike Turner going from one dressing room to another and literally pushed me in front of him and into the rest of my life when she said, show Ike the pictures. And he stopped and he said, what pictures? And he liked the pictures and he took me to the dressing room to show Tina and Tina liked the pictures. And he introduced me to the first publicist I met. And that guy took me to a party where I met a number of other people. Some of them from that party I still know today. A woman who was Patty Smith's manager who runs a gallery downtown. I mean, even more than I can think going to that party really introduced me to the beginning of my introduction to and the music business. they brought you out business. to California too, right? Didn't they? I took me to California. I lived in the studio for a month. I think I slept about six hours or not really even sleeping in those days. I had a lot of cocaine. And I learned too much about it at the time. Uh, luckily, yeah, I, 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 I read that you had said he was up for like a solid week. More than that. <laughs> More than that. He was up for, when I first got in touch with him, I had taken some pictures when they came to New York. And I had a picture that was a really good one. I thought it was a good album cover. But by that time, I knew enough about Ike and Tina's situation that you couldn't send something to them. It wasn't that organized. It was really chaotic. And I knew if I wanted Ike to see the picture, I had to show it to him. And they were in Washington. I flew down there to... You can read in my book what that day was like. It was like my longest day in life. It lasted eight days. But I went to Washington and there was a little trouble finding him. I finally found Ike. And then the first thing he said was come to California with us. And he gave me some Coke. And that was on a Saturday night. And I went out there to California all week. Thursday afternoon, I spent the day with Tina and took some pictures. Uh, Friday, we met the art director from the record company. And he said, well, bring me the pictures in New York on Monday. So Friday night, I flew home. That was the first time I went to sleep from the Saturday morning or that I woke up in the first place. Right. Ike was awake when I got there and he was awake when I left. <laughs> um, so those days were kind of chaotic. But when you're 24 and you don't know any better, right. it was a lot of fun. Right. And it turned out to be my first album cover. Right. You mentioned your book. You're the author of 15 books, right. including Rock Scene in 2011 and more recently, Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer that was released on your 75th birthday in 2020. Right. That's my autobiography. I finally got to actually write the stories. My other books are mostly pictures right. with captions that explain the pictures. In this book, it's all words and there actually are 280 pictures in the book. But the pictures explain the words rather than the other way around. They kind of illustrate the stories. 
So this one's my life story. I don't do blue. It's not a scandal book, but it is a very fun book and an interesting book about how one thing leads to another. And if you just stay awake and stay determined and don't stay home, go right. out and have a life, right. you'll get a life. Right. I mean, that's the most fascinating thing to me about your career is it's always been one thing leading to something else, leading mm. to something else. Talk about meeting Elephant's Memory and Lieber mm. and Krebs and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. One thing leads to another. I, I ended up taking pictures after the first year after Icantina. Like I said, that party, that publicist I was introduced to there, took me to a record company, talked them into hiring me for a new piano player was coming to play in New York. And that turned out to be Elton John. And he liked my pictures and I started working with him. And that brought me to different record companies. Actually, Warner Brothers I started working with in Atlantic. And by two years later, by the end of 71, even, I was included in the first book of rock and roll photography called Photography of Rock. And the writer for that book was doing a story on the Elephant's Memory Band, who at the time were working with John and Yoko in the studio. And he asked me if I would want to come and take pictures of John and Yoko. And I said, of course, they were the most famous people in the world and people I really admired because they were not just famous. They were working for world peace constantly. And I really admired that. So I met them for the article, The Elephant's Memory Story. And then they liked the pictures I took that night. And they used one of them in the album cover for Sometime in New York City, the album they were working on. And they invited me to the studio more often. So then in the summer, they started doing an Elephant's Memory album. So I took a lot of pictures of the elephants and ended up going up to their management's office. And it turned out their manager, somebody in the office said, you should come and see this other band that we manage, the New York Dolls. And that's how I met the New York Dolls. And they became my second family in rock and roll. Right. Elvis Memory became one of my first. And then the New York Dolls were the next one. Have you seen the David Johansson documentary, the Marty Scorsese? We just saw it. Yeah, it just opened last week. The how, Personality how Crisis, One Night Only. It's very funny. Johansson is one of the funnier people in show business. Martin Scorsese is one of the better directors in show business. <laughs> so so they that? made a really good film that really captures David's personality and his jokes, his jokes throughout the film. So it's a laugh out loud kind of film, which are the kind of films I like. Yeah, no, for sure. Going back to your film, your documentary, The Don Let's Doc, Yoko Ono's in it and mm -hmm. speaks very, very, very glowingly mm. of you, your work, and your personality and your relationship. There's real, genuine affection there. Yoko and I actually became very good friends. Well, John and Yoko and I, but then John left too soon. I'm still friends with Yoko today. I don't know how that kind of thing happens, but I get along with a lot of people. I remember the first time I met them after we talked for a little while and Yoko said, we want to be in touch with you and come to the studio more often. And I did. And I, I just became very friendly with them, like, you know, like family. I mean, after John passed, I, I spent a lot of time talking to Yoko and everybody was completely shocked and hurt. And, and Yoko was a real pillar of strength who helped a lot of us get through it. There's some great shots of you taking pictures of John and Sean as a baby. When Sean was born, shortly after Sean was born, John Yoko called to ask me to take pictures to send to their family, like the first portraits of them with their new baby. And that was a very exciting day for me. It was very intimate, you know, them holding this baby and John being so concerned about the baby and so attentive. And I think it was the happiest day I've ever seen him. He had a smile from ear to ear. He just couldn't believe his luck that he had this beautiful, perfect little baby and time to raise him. Because when he had Julian in the first place, he was a Beatle and he was traveling all over the world and he didn't even know where he was from day to day and much less where his family was. When Sean was born, John decided to make a real commitment to raising him and learning how to be responsible for his family. 
and to control his drug intake and to control the partying and basically to grow up and get serious with life. And in, by 1980, five years later, he had learned a lot. And most of the things that people admired John Lennon for were from the late 60s, early 70s, when he was out of his head. Right. And he still was able to put down a lot of good information. But in 1980, he had summed it all up, and he was really coming from a very grounded, intelligent, adult point of view. And that's when his output was cut off at, right. at the worst possible time. He was about to go on a world tour and bring that knowledge to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's when it was cut off. And he did two interviews just before he passed. He did a Playboy interview with David Sheff, and he did a BBC interview with Andy Peebles. And both of those interviews are out as books. And if anybody really wants to know about John Lennon, they should read what he had to say and not what people have to say about right. him. Right. But to read what he had to say in the Playboy interview or the BBC interview, because he came from such a position of strength at that point. To become so close to an iconic family like John, Yoko, and Sean, I didn't realize until just the last few days getting ready for today that you actually introduced Sean to a bunch of music. You made mm. mixtapes for him mm. when he was little, and he said it's the first time he heard hip-hop, it's the first time he heard punk rock, right. and a lot of his favorite music still today came right. from your putting together those mixtapes. Well, Sean was five when John passed away, and John had some good old rock and roll music that he enjoyed. He had kind of withdrawn from current music while he was raising Sean. He said that he just put on the WPIX classical music. He canceled his subscription to the trade magazines. And so actually just before he passed, I brought him a Don Let's video of the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Slits and the Boomtown Rats to kind of bring him up to date so he'd know what was going on. But then he passed away and Sean was left without that kind of inspiration, without somebody to show him. And since I was there pretty much on a more than weekly basis, I was there every other day, practically for a couple of years at least, I started bringing him tapes from Jamaican music, African music, Fela Cootie and Bob Marley and Miles Davis and things I felt he should know, you know, Africa Mabata. I have a very diverse taste in music. World music is my favorite. Mm -hmm. And I brought that to Sean and had no idea how a young kid would relate to Jatem, for instance, you know, a Serge Gainsborough song or uh, Japanese songs, which the Flower Power Group turned out to be one of his favorites, a guy named Joe Yamanaka. And, I, and it really pleased me a lot 20 years later when he, I was with him and he was telling somebody, yeah, Bob used to bring me all these great cassettes. And, really influenced. You know, when you're talking to an eight-year-old, 10-year-old, you don't know if it matters at all. But when 20 years later, he says, that was my best music I ever got. Right. It makes you feel really good. There are stories about you in the studio with John and Yoko, mm. and you never know who would show up. Mm. And you were always with your camera. So you would capture Rudolph Nureyev or Andy Warhol or Mick Jagger that you probably weren't expecting any of these people. Uh, well, you always no, be none of us were expecting them. They just walk in at three o'clock in the morning. One night, actually, I went home around three. It was I thought it was getting a little late. It was a quiet night in the studio. And just as I got home, the road manager called and said, you better come back to the studio. Mick Jagger's on his way. And he shows up four in the morning. I was thinking about it recently because I go to sleep a lot earlier now. I, I don't really go out to bars at two in the morning to hang out with 20-year-olds like I used to. And the idea that that still goes on and that people still go somewhere at four in the morning and have fun till six or eight, I don't do that anymore. But I used to have a lot of fun doing that. It's totally normal. I mean, there's a picture of John and Yoko and Mick all playing the piano together in the studio. And right. it looks fine until you realize it's about 6.30 in the morning and they all look totally awake <laughs> and having fun. Right. <laughs> you know? right. And you're always there to capture it. I always worked on a kind of a 24-hour schedule. 
Yoko took me to Japan in 1974, and I made a lot of connections over there. And so I started working with magazines there, and then I was working with magazines in Europe, thanks to Lisa Robinson and my connection with Roxine and the NME. And so I was always kind of aware of what time it was in England and what time it was in Japan. And my phone could ring at any time of day and night and there'd be people from all over the world. And I really enjoyed that. Right. I liked being in touch with the world. Right. And, and speaking of being in touch with the world, those images were traveling the globe so that the iconic New York scene images that you were taking in the mid to late 70s were making their way over to the UK. Mm. And then the UK images that you were taking, you know, were making their way Again, back things to just happen and one thing leads to another. I didn't even know there was a scene in England. I knew one person, I knew the editor of The Melody Maker and I knew Malcolm McLaren because he had come to try to sell clothes to the New York Dolls. And then he went back to England to start a band. He planned to start a band with Sylvain Sylvain, the guitarist from The Dolls. And went back to England with Sylvain's equipment, actually, his guitar and a big piano. But that summer, I got David and Sil a job in Japan, and they got busy doing that. And Malcolm got tired of waiting, and he got this other guy, Johnny Rotten, to start the band without Sil. So <laughs> that's how that worked out. So I went to England about a year and a half later, and I went to Europe, actually, because my son was staying with my in-laws in Paris. And I was tired of not seeing him, and I got a little money working with Bay City Rollers. I made a lot of money, and I went to Europe. And decided to stop in England just to see the couple of people I knew since I was selling them pictures. And Malcolm took me to his club, Louise, and I met Billy Idol and Joe Strummer and Mick Jones from The Clash. And I met the Sex Pistols and Susie and the Banshees. They were all in this one club, like the back room of Max's, but the English version, a place called Club Louise. And I took pictures of the Sex Pistols. I went to see The Clash at one of the very first gigs in the ICA in London. And I was totally blown away by the power of The Clash. And then I came back a year later to kind of see what else was going on in England. And that's when I connected with The Clash and actually met Joe and Mick to start talking to them and, and started working with them, I think, the following summer. You mentioned both The Clash and The Sex Pistols. It wasn't just you taking pictures. You became basically their photographer. So that sense, when yeah. they were there, when they were here. Well, because I went there and met them, then when they, at first I think The Clash came here, that was in 78, they came to mix their record. And I was the only guy from New York that they had met. And I had a 1954 Buick, which is a very rock and roll car. And I knew all the clubs and I knew where to go. And uh, I knew where to get drinks and a little smoke. And, and they just had a really good time with me. And that just helped develop the relationship more and more to the point where in the 80s, actually, after the band broke up and Joe used to come to New York, he would stay on my couch at wow. my house. And we would drink and carouse for 10 days. And then he'd finally go home. There were those iconic images of the clash on the top of the Empire State Building. That was in 81. It's not the Empire State Building, it's the RCA Building, because the whole point of going to the RCA Building is that you get the Empire State Building right. in the picture. Right. And the Empire State Building is like the symbol that says New York City. Right. But the only place in the world that has that building. Right. You see that, you know you're looking at New York, and the RCA Building is the perfect roof that overlooks that. And that was when they were taping the Tom Snyder show, which is a TV show that they record in the RCA building. Uh, There's a lot of TV shows in there. Saturday Night Live comes from that building. So when Green Day was there 20 years later, I told them, this is the same building I did the Clash. And it's okay, let's go to the roof. So you and, replicated and we'll the do, shots. We'll yeah. do another shot with Green Day. Yeah, That's, that's my favorite roof because it just says New York. Mm -hmm. But actually, I remember being in the elevator because they did the, the Clash did the Tom Snyder show. And by that time, I was pretty much traveling with them, hanging out with them. I went on two bus rides across America with The Clash and one bus ride with the Sex Pistols. That's all they did. <laughs> but I remember telling them, this is the best roof in New York. We should go uptown. And we were literally in the elevator leaving. 
And I remember Joe turned to the other guy and says, we should listen to him. He knows New York. <laughs> and we went up to the roof, and I was right. We took some great pictures. Where did you take the iconic shot of the clash with the baseball bats on the highway? We actually placed that. There is a picture of the clash. They look very threatening. I think Paul is holding a baseball bat. It looks very punk, don't mess with us kind of picture. We were actually on the bus. We left Los Angeles, drove for a couple hours, got off the bus to pee or something. And they were hitting the ball around just to run a little and, and exercise. And I took a bunch of pictures. And then years later, because it's somewhere on the highway between Los Angeles and I think we're on our way to St. Louis or something, you know, points east. But in the way in the background is a traffic sign, you know, a direction sign. And so when the quality got good enough, we could blow the thing up really, really big and, and check out that little tiny part of the negative. And it's actually just before the exit to Coachella. Oh, that's so funny. Which is really kind of ironic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, since so many bands go to Coachella. But that's where they're standing on a highway just before the Coachella exit. Well, one thing that I found very interesting is that you've taken so many photographs that sometimes you go back to them and what you thought you were capturing in the moment is only part mm. of what you captured because there's so much there. Oh, people see details that I wouldn't even think of. You know, the, the famous picture of John Lennon wearing the New York City T-shirt. Tommy Hilfiger loves that picture because of the jeans that he's wearing because it's kind of a sailor cut that has straight across pockets instead of slanted pockets that most jeans have. So he loves that little detail of it. Where somebody else will like a building in the background. Right. Where somebody else says, oh, look at the belt buckle, you know. And right. I mean, for me, what I really try to capture is the passion and the feeling of what's going on. For me, rock and roll is about freedom. It's about the freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public. And that's what I try to capture in my pictures. So it's not really about the fact of what jeans he's wearing. Right. It's the fact of the moment that people feel free and open. And I think that people like that particular New York City picture of John Lennon because we were having a conversation and he looks very open and available. He looks like you can speak to him in that right. picture, like he's speaking to you. And that's what I try to get is that moment of passion, the moment of rock and roll when everybody's yelling yay and nobody's thinking about paying the rent. Right. And everybody in that moment is free to just be. And that's the kind of feelings I try to capture in my photos so that when you see the photo, you feel like you're there and you right. feel a moment of freedom. Talk about, I mean, some of the iconic images. You mentioned the Tina Turner image. That's one of your personal favorites. You mentioned John Lennon in the New York City. Talk about John Lennon at the Statue of Liberty. That's so iconic. Well, that picture, actually, the picture that John at the Statue of Liberty is, I feel, one of my most important pictures. And for me, one of my best accomplishments. Because most of my pictures, I'll just go somewhere and try to figure out the best situation in the moment. I don't make a lot of storyboards and designs and we're going to draw this and you're going to wear that and your hair is going to be like this. I don't make any plans like that at all. I grab my camera bag and I show up by myself without an assistant and make the best of it. <laughs> and the picture of the Statue of Liberty was because the United States government was trying to throw John Lennon out of the country. They felt that he was speaking about peace in a time of war and they felt that was dangerous to their plans. And so the Nixon administration wanted him thrown out of the country. And I thought that the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of welcome and that we should show that we wanted to welcome people like John Lennon. And I suggested it to him and he was very happy to, to do it. He thought it was a good idea, which pleased me because he was very media savvy. And for him to like that idea really meant I got something right for once. You know, <laughs> To take the picture was actually relatively simple. We didn't get any permissions or make any plans. We just 
I drove him down to the ferry. We got on the ferry like, uh, you know, a New Yorker and an English tourist. And we went out there like any other visitor to the U.S. The hard part was when we got in front, because like I said, I didn't do a lot of planning, was to how to line up a person who's just under six feet with a statue that's 305 feet tall. <laughs> and you can only back up so much because you're on an island. <laughs> you know? oh, and I had to water. make the perspectives, you know, look right so he didn't look too small. And I think we got that right. People like that picture a lot. And actually, it wasn't printed a lot at the time because people were kind of afraid of the politics of John's right. case. But after he passed, it became a real symbol of personal freedom. Yes. Because people think of John Lennon in terms of personal freedom, like the Statue of Liberty. Did you notice the sign on the lawn when you took the shot? I did. And I usually don't like it. The sign says, keep off grass. <laughs> and I usually don't like to have any extraneous thoughts in my picture. And I would have moved him to cover the sign, except that the excuse that the government had to throw him out of the country was because he had been arrested for having marijuana, right. which is also known as grass. Right. It didn't and say so keep the off fact it didn't the say grass. the grass. It didn't say specifically this grass. It said just keep off grass. <laughs> and he's kind of giving a peace sign saying, I'll be good. Just let me stay, you know. So yeah, that was on purpose. Another classic image is Led Zeppelin with mm. the Led Zeppelin airplane. That just happened. That's one of my things where I say it was just in the moment. We went there. There was a big plane. Robert said, can we take a picture of our plane? Because I remember I was home and Lisa Robinson called and said, can you come to Pittsburgh today? And I said, yeah, how are we going to get to Pittsburgh? She says, oh, they have their own plane. I said, oh, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Not many bands had a plane. It was actually a plane that you rent. Uh, They didn't own the plane. But But if you rent it for a month, they put your name on it. (laughs) I was on the same plane with Elton John. Alice Cooper rented it. The Rolling Stones had it at one point. It was an amazing plane. I had several first-class kind of seats in the front. had a big lounge area in the middle that had banquets, and it had a brass bar with a piano, organ, keyboard built into it, and the bartender had any kind of booze you wanted. In the back, there were two bedrooms. One of the bedrooms had a fireplace, which was electric. (laughs) They didn't actually burn logs on the plane, but it was a pretty special plane. But it was just the first day I met Led Zeppelin. We went out to the airport, and as we were going to the stairs to get on the plane, Robert, I think, was the one who said, take a picture of us with the plane. And we just walked over to the wing. And what I like about the picture, actually, is it's so big, it doesn't fit in the picture. You see the wing and the engine and the name and the rest of the plane is just out of the picture. It's so big. I have another picture of Elton with the plane, and it's way in the background. It looks like a little toy behind him. It's not nearly as impressive. Well, the Elton shot that is impressive is when you caught him basically levitating over his piano. I I remember going to shoot him. I'm going to have to take pictures of a guy with a piano, and it's the hardest thing, almost as bad as a drummer, but it's even worse because you got this giant box in front of the guy, and maybe you can get a profile picture, but really hard to shoot a piano player. And then I met Elton, and he's not a normal piano player. He's all over the piano. And when he went vertical like that, and I managed to capture it, it's actually one of the highlights moments in his film. It kind of captures the moment when he became famous. Yeah, unbelievable. Another iconic image is Debbie Harry at Coney Island in 1977 Uh, with the Cyclone. What do you remember about that? To do a picture like that today, you'd need a van with stylists and catering and 12 assistants to set it all up and make her look just right. The way we did it in the 1970s is that Debbie walked across the street towards me and I took a couple of pictures. And she just looked perfect because she always did. Some people are just naturally beautiful and Debbie's one of them. But the scale of the roller coaster behind her is so perfect. Hmm. Well, but that's what it was. It's very reminiscent of the 70s. There was a giant roller coaster, and she was just the perfect 70s beauty. We've made a new version of that, a silkscreen version, where the Gary Lichtenstein, my silkscreen printer, 
took out a lot of the color in the middle. It's actually a color picture, but he took out a lot of the color to make it more black and white. So it looks like she's walking out of history. Mm. And it's a really great image. Wow. So speaking of Debbie Harry, let's talk a little bit about New York in the late 70s. Mm. I had heard that, was it television who convinced Hilly to open his room to put well, on concerts? Room that, that's kind of the way the story's gotten around. Don't tell that to Jane County. Jane County insists that she was the first one to play at the bar there on uh, 315 Bowery. And I had to do some research because at one point I mentioned that television was the first band and Jane called me up furious. I actually <laughs> went online and called me, got very upset about it. And I had to do some research to find out that when Hilly opened the bar at 315 Bowery, it was called Hilly's on the Bowery. He opened it in November of 1974. Jane played there and Eric Emerson played there and a few other bands. And then in the spring, Hilly decided to change the name to CBGB. And the day he was putting up the new sign, Tom Verlaine came by and said, oh, do you have a club? Can we play here? And so television was the first band that played at Hilly's bar when it was called CBGB. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Jane County was the first to play at Hilly's. So when when Tom Verlaine and television convinced Hilly to let them play his newly named CBGB club, were you there that night? I certainly was there one of the very first nights that television played. Patty Smith would play with them. I do remember specifically bringing the writer from The Melody Maker to see Stilettos opening for television. Before Blondie, Debbie was in a band called The Stilettos with El Gentile and a, a couple other people. And I think that was one of the very earliest shows that I went to. Did you feel the energy in CB's immediately? CB's was fun. It was kind of cool because it was out of the way. It was a dump on the Bowery that nobody ever heard of. And you'd only go there on purpose because you heard a friend or a band was playing there. And so it was kind of a secret place in the early days. Bands that played there had no names, no backing, no press. Hilly didn't really want a largely successful venue. Uh, Hilly was a partner to Ron Delsner in the very early days when Ron started booking the Schaefer Music Festival in Central Park. And it started getting successful, and Hilly didn't want to work that much. Uh, he didn't want to have to struggle and, and make a big business. He wanted to own a bar where he could have a couple of beers and enough people to come in and buy beers to pay for the rent. He didn't really want the huge money-making success. He didn't want the, the work of it. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a huge success for him. He just wanted a place where his dogs could hang out, right? His dogs would live in there. He, <laughs> he, he, he had two Dobermans, and he would keep them in overnight as watchdogs. They didn't get walked, and so there were corners of the club you didn't want to step in by accident, <laughs> and it kind of smelled a bit raunchy. Another reason why it was not a popular kind of place, but Hilly was like the kind of uncle who's in charge when your parents go out of town and he just wants to sit upstairs and drink a beer and you kids can go to the basement and do whatever you want, but you can't hurt anybody and you can't break anything. So if somebody would break something or they get in a fight, Hilly would throw them out. Anything else was okay. He really didn't care what kind of music you played. He himself, he liked country blues and bluegrass, which is the CBGB part. It didn't turn out that way. When Jane came in and said his name was Jane County, Hilly thought that was a country band. <laughs> and then he found out Jane was not a country band. You, you talked before about taking images in the moment mm. that you don't realize the historical significance, perhaps until later. So you were taking pictures of empty parts of Seabees back then mm. that nobody would care about. But now, with the club no longer there mm. and so historic in nature, those 
pictures have become historic. Oddly enough, yeah. I mean, most of the bands that played at CBGB's, the most common phrase to describe a band was no commercial potential. <laughs> that was a phrase you heard every other day relating to the downtown music scene. And famously, Clive Davis told Lisa Robinson not to talk about bands from CBGB's because nobody wanted to hear about that above 14th Street. Right. And then he came down and signed Patti Smith right. and a couple of other bands. But at the beginning, nobody wanted to know anything about those bands. There was no commercial potential. I was photographing because I felt there was not so much commercial potential, but I felt it was historic. I felt it was important somehow. And I was making enough money off the Led Zeppelins and the other bands that I was photographing to be able to indulge in a hobby. Right. And Lisa Robinson came up with a hobby called Rock Scene Magazine. And Richard Robinson and Lenny Kay and myself and Danny Fields and Lee Childers uh, put out this magazine that was kind of a deluxe fanzine. We didn't publish a lot of bands that record companies advertised in, so we didn't get very much advertising. But we published a lot of bands that we liked and new bands that nobody heard about. And so the magazine was very popular with other musicians who wanted to know things. And it was a lot of fun. And it gave us access to all kinds of new things and new bands and it gave me a reason to photograph unknown bands at CBGB's because if nothing else, at least we could talk about it in rock scene and right. tell people that it was there. Right. Other magazines like Rolling Stone would only print stories about bands that had a record because if they felt they were telling somebody something, they should be able to get the record. Right. We felt that if we found it, you could find it. Right. And you might have to leave Kansas and come to New York <laughs> to find it. And a lot of people told me they did. Like wow. They would come and say, wow, you made New York look like so much fun. I left home and I came to New York. And that always made me feel good because wow. then they had a life. Right. Then they did something. One of those bands that you were shooting back then was part of the CB scene was the Ramones. Talk about shooting the Ramones and what was that like? Well, I remember the first time I saw the Ramones and to quote Legs McNeil, I didn't know what had happened, but I knew I wanted to see it again. <laughs> it went by so fast. They did like eight songs in 12 minutes. <laughs> and they were just amazing, powerful and fun. I like fun. In the early days, none of those bands were really good in the sense of playing the right notes, but they were good at energy. They played energy. Which and is I great like for a energy. photographer. Yeah, for me, I like things that move. And, it, you know, uh, a guy like Eric Clapton stands there with one expression for two hours. Right. It's not really a lot to photograph. Right. I've photographed him a dozen times. I got the same picture every time, <laughs> you know. But a band like the Ramones, they're all over the place, especially the Who. Almost all the pictures of The Who that you'll ever see are blurry because they just move too fast for anybody to capture. Right. Well, speaking of The Who, your very first Rolling Stone cover was Keith Moon in a top hat. Right. That was a good one. Where he was actually being the MC at a Shanana concert. And he came out twice because in those days people played two sets. And for the one set, he came out in a dress as somebody's aunt. You know, English people, when they dress up like a woman, they always dress up like your aunt. And the other set, he came out dressed like a little Lord Fauntleroy with a top hat and an ascot. And that's the picture that made the cover of Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. Another band famously associated with New York that you shot in the 70s was Kiss. So talk about Kiss as the superheroes who are going into the phone booth and changing from yeah. their, their suits into their costumes, but they still had the makeup. Talk about that. Well, Kiss were wildly different from any of the other bands in that they had such a sense of their personality that they created a superhero personality. The first time I photographed them, I actually knew their manager, Bill Coyne and Joyce Byers, had produced a TV show 
And one of their segments was about John and Yoko. So I had met him a year earlier when they were doing that. And then I was working a lot with Buddha Records. So when they signed Kiss to Buddha, I was their guy. And I remember taking a picture of Neil Bogart, the president of Buddha, and he was handcuffed to the Kiss contract. I mean, most presidents, they're at their desk and it's a formal picture of them signing the degree. But Neil had a sense of humor. He actually had Kiss makeup that he put on a, a, a style of his own. And they were a lot of fun. I remember the first night I photographed them and I went backstage afterwards. Because uh, traditionally I would photograph a band and then go back to the dressing room and take pictures of them with whatever visitors or, you know, hopefully some stars would show up. And I got to the dressing room door and Bill said like, oh no, we don't take any pictures after the show. When the makeup comes off, the band is over. And they only exist when they have that face on. And when the makeup runs and they wash it off, they're not Kiss anymore. And so that concept that they only existed as superheroes when they're in costume. Without the costume, they're not a band. Cream Magazine came up with an idea of a photo novella where Kiss is in uh, day clothes, like if they're wearing a suit and tie, even though they had a Kiss face, it's like Clark Kent, like it was their secret identity and you wouldn't recognize them. And they discover, it was John Denver, but they cleverly disguised that as John Cleveland was doing a concert <laughs> and they felt that the world was being brought down by boring music and they had to save the world with rock and roll. And so I did a series of pictures with them, starting with them in the suits. And part of it was that they run into a phone booth, the suits on, and they run out of the phone booth as their Kiss outfit, like Superman or any superhero. And the day we were doing it, Gene and Ace didn't have suits at the time. They're both wearing my suits. They didn't, they didn't <laughs> hear. I think Peter had his own suit and Paul borrowed one from Bill O'Coin. And so we took the pictures and then we took one on the sidewalk, which came out pretty well. So you have a history of giving your subjects your clothing. I don't think of myself as a stylist, but yes, it <laughs> tends to work out that way sometimes. I came back from England one time and Johansson did a show at Max's and he was wearing my shirt, jacket, belt and pants. <laughs> he probably would have worn my boots, but I, I, he might have actually even been wearing the boots. I think he was. That's crazy. But yeah, so with the Kiss picture, we took a whole series of pictures for the comic book. I do remember the day we had the suits on. We went back to my studio for them to change into their outfit. I was changing some film and Gene was behind me. And one minute he was just a normal guy from Brooklyn with a suit and tie. Next minute I turned around and there was this monster in my studio. This guy who was like a foot and a half taller with the makeup and everything. He becomes a different personality. It really is like a superhero and, and scary, very scary when suddenly this person, you know, who was telling nice jokes one minute ago and all of a sudden he's this monster towering over you. It came out in the magazine first. We did the picture in November. It came out in January. The band was in the studio recording the new album. And when they saw the picture, they said, that's the picture we're going to call it Dress to Kill. Wow. And then I had to go back to the studio with the suits and they put the suits on so it could look like they were recording in those kind of suits and ties like that was their other outfits. The only time Kiss has ever done something that's not in their Kiss uniform. I did the picture with the Dress to Kill, and I did some pictures of them in Japan with kimonos on. Right. And as far as I know, that's the only time they ever right. posed, in, except for they did a Vervados ad in suits one day. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great quotes from some of these iconic artists. Iggy Pop about Bob Gruen. What's great about Bob is he doesn't open his fucking mouth. <laughs> Billy Joe Armstrong, the thing about Bob is he's cool to hang out with and he doesn't irritate the shit out of you like most <laughs> photographers. So obviously there's a pattern, there's a theme mm. here that you become one of the guys. You know? I'm a friendly person. I get along with musicians. In high school, I was in the folk music club and the theater club. 
it's just the, the kind of lifestyle. I, I'm more comfortable staying up at night than getting up in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, somebody once asked me, how do you take pictures of something without interrupting, you know, dis- disrupting the scene? And I said, by being part of it. Right. I would often bring something to the situation, whether it was a six pack or a ride in my car or something, you know, that would add to whatever somebody was doing. And people seem to like having me around. Uh, it's not just the pictures. Right. Right. There's a great quote from Alice Cooper that he says Bob was as much a part of the rock scene as any band, mm. which is such a compliment. There's a great story that you tell about trying to get just the right shot at a Chuck Berry concert. Mm. And you stand on your seat and security starts giving you a hard time. Yeah. yeah like, that was down, actually the first down. day I got a good camera. I remember when I was delivering the Cantina picture to the art director. And he asked me what kind of camera. I was still using my dad's Minolta. And he said, why don't you get yourself a good camera? And I actually did take that money and bought a Nikon. And went to the Madison Square Garden with it that night. And Chuck Berry was licking the neck of his guitar. And I was trying to get above the crowd a little bit higher. And a guard was yelling at me for standing on the seat. And I wasn't listening. He lifted me up to get me off the seat. And that was the moment I got the right angle. <laughs> and he dropped me in the aisle and said, if you, don't take, if you take another picture, I'm going to smash your camera. It was a brand new camera. I ran. <laughs> but you got but the I shot. But I got that shot. It's one of my favorite. It looks like Chuck Berry's kissing his guitar. Some of the other artists that you have shot, I mean, there's so many, but just to name a few, going back to the 70s, Sly Stone, Marvin Gaye, Muddy Waters, Tina Turner, Jackson 5, Freddie Mercury. Any thoughts on any of those that come to mind as I call out the names? Oh, all of them. Which one? <laughs> I got thoughts on everybody. I mean, they're all different and uh, I like meeting different people and I like meeting powerful personalities and then trying to figure out how to capture some of that in a moment. Well, there are iconic shots of yours with, with Prince hmm. and Springsteen and Madonna and the Stones and Bob Marley. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Do you have any memories, good or bad, of, we just had Doc McGee on this program, about the Moscow Peace Festival? Oh, I'm sure he has a different take than I did. For me, it was fun. <laughs> uh, for him, there was a lot of bribery and, you know, Russian double dealing and backstage things. I think somebody tried to kidnap the merchandise truck. Uh, yeah, he had a lot of problems. I had fun. Going to Moscow for me was great. It was a, a lot of top bands. I didn't really know the metal bands as well as some of the other people, but I met them there. The Scorpions were fun. Skid Row was along on that trip, but the big bands was Ozzy and Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. All the Russians were just loved Ozzy. You know, I remember the Russian actually, what is Ozzy? We want Ozzy. Was that your first time in Russia? That's my only time in Russia. It was kind of weird. It was just during the glass uh, period, just before the Soviet Union collapsed, right. but there were, Signs of freedom. I saw kids like it reminded me of being in Washington Square Park where you saw groups of of long hair, young people wearing army jackets and playing guitars and singing earnestly to each other, like things that meant something. Of course, in Russian, I didn't know what the hell they were singing. But I remember seeing these kids singing to each other and thinking, you know, something's going on here. It was really the first time that they had rock and roll in the stadium was a big deal for them. And for me, it was just eye opening being in Russia, especially one night. MTV had arranged, the promoter knew some guys who was like, four or five guys had motorcycles and they were going to, Motley Crue, I think, was going to meet with these motorcycle guys and they were going to film it for MTV. But when we went there, it turns out the motorcycle guys had told their friends that they were going to be on MTV and everybody showed up. We pulled into this parking lot and there were like 200 bikers dressed to kill. And in the far side of the parking lot, there was a car 
burning like you see in a, in a rock video. And I realized this is not a rock video. That's a car burning. <laughs> like these kids are crazy. Right. And they had like helmets, literally with nails sticking out of leather helmets because it looked cool. Right. And I mean, you can die. Right. You know, that's not going to protect you. It's going to kill you. But these kids were like the wild one. It was like so raw and so real. These motorcycle gangs. That was a highlight for me. Was meeting those guys. And, yeah, amazing. They followed us. We were on a truck with lights, and they drove down the road filming them. So after doing all this work and shooting so many of these iconic artists and musicians, your work has now been showed in galleries and exhibits and museums. There's that great exhibit in Brazil mm. where they just went crazy. I've had a couple of good exhibits down there. But yeah, one of them had 280 pictures. It was a giant 13,000 square foot room. It was huge. And very popular. 40,000 people came to that one. Did you ever imagine when you were just starting out, like bumping well, into Ike Turner on the street? Well, I don't ever imagine being in a museum. Uh, that really was pretty far-fetched to think of that. I did always imagine that I would exhibit my pictures. I've always wanted to make pictures that mattered, not just pictures that were journalism. My motto from when I was a teenager is Ars Gratia Pecunica, which means art for the sake of money. I always wanted to make art, to make something that mattered but I always wanted to be paid for it. Mm -hmm. But I started exhibiting my pictures very early on in 1970. I think I had my first exhibit in New York in 72. Mm. I got my first review in the New York Times for that show, actually, in 1972. But it was a long time because in the early days, there was just a couple of galleries that would have photography as art. And a lot of people didn't really believe photography was art, right. you know, something that you could sign and sell as an art piece. And nowadays it's much more common. And in fact, there's a gigantic art photography market right. around the world. Right. There's a great quote from you where you say, doing things that I felt were important turned out to be important. I'm lucky that way. Yeah, things that I liked and I felt mattered. And then it turned out that other people felt that. I mean, like all those bands of CBGBs in the early days, that was like, Really nothing. Nobody was interested in those bands. And now it's like the birthplace of the new right. era. You know? Right. Well, all these stories and more can be read in more detail in Bob's great book, Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer from 2020. And this was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks to Bob Gruen for joining us this week. Bob's contributions to the world of photography and music are visual documents that will last forever. His passion, dedication, and keen eye have enriched our lives and will continue to do so for generations to come. Make sure to check out his incredible portfolio at bobgruen.com. You'll find yourself immersed in the heart and soul of rock and roll, reliving moments that have left an indelible mark on our cultural landscape. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenow, Catherine Hoppy, 
Michaela Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.